Welcome to the audiobook version of Scope on Scope, a colorful arrangement of true crime stories. A collection of short stories based on Steve Scope Schofield's recollections of growing up at his infamous family's mob-connected shop, Schofield's Flowers. May 11th, 1980, Chicago. Mother's Day. The Super Bowl of Flowers. I come from a long line of infamy. My grandpa was infamous. Big Bill Schofield was sole owner of the family flower shop until the 1920s when he took on an infamous, not-so-silent partner. Al Capone's competitor and head of the Northside Chicago gang, Dion O'Banion, had an office above the flower shop and a flair for flower arrangement. He was putting one together when he was shot dead trimming chrysanthemums, found still holding the scissors. Five years and 600 casualties later, on the second busiest day in the flower business, things got settled infamously at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Schofield's flowers provided the funeral wreath for all seven victims. My dad was infamous. He took over as sole owner of Schofield's flowers, but he was also the biggest sports bookie in Chicago. He did time for that in Sandstone, a low-security federal correctional institution in Sandstone, Minnesota, where you go if you get busted by the FBI. He got sent there courtesy of Judge Julius Hoffman, who threw out the plea bargain that would have kept my dad out of prison. After my dad got out of prison, I remember he'd always count his cash from this cool old cash register that we had from when my grandpa originally started the flower shop. Every night he'd go, one for the government, one for me, and one for the shop. Back in the day, we had two live swans floating in a pond in front of the flower shop. There were pictures in the flower shop wall of mobsters like Dion O'Banion and Bugs Moran. Gangsters would come into the flower shop in the middle of the night looking for something for their girlfriends. We'll pay 25 bucks for a corsage. I delivered flowers to the head of the Chicago outfit, Sam Giacana, at this French restaurant, La Bastille. Sammy G, as he insisted I call him, held court there. Sammy G was a big deal. He knew big deal people like Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys. Everything about Sammy G was big, especially his big tips. I always left there smiling. I know things about how the mob hit on O'Banion went down. There's the stuff that the police know. Three guys walked in, one with a sling and a cast on his right arm. So when O'Banion shook the guy's left hand with his right hand, the guy held on, pulled the gun out of his jacket with his right hand, and shot him dead. Then, there's the stuff that isn't in the police reports, but a little bird told me about. There was a black guy named Willie, a bum whom my grandpa gave odd jobs to, like paying him to clean up. He usually stayed in the back area of the shop. He was there when O'Banion was snuffed, and he was never seen again. He ran away, and stayed away forever. That's the way to not get killed in mobster-run Chicago. Our gang used to go to this club called Faces, which was a mob hangout. It was like Studio 54 Chicago. 
I used to deliver flowers there, but I got in because of Jimmy LaPrairie, who knew Jimmy Rittenberg. And Jimmy asked Jimmy, and that's how I got my faces card. Jimmy LaPrairie was a cop then, but moonlighted as a bouncer. He'd worked at the flower shop, too, before my dad died, and afterwards. When my dad got out of prison, he had connections, and he got Jimmy on the police force. I guess my dad owed him one. Jimmy was the one who burned my dad's bookie receipts when the FBI busted him. Every part of my life up till then had a connection to mobsters. Adolph's was an Italian restaurant at State and Rush. It was the restaurant of the day. It was owned by the Renucci family till it closed in 1988. Chuck Renucci was my godfather, and when Chuck died of cancer, his brother, Fortune, took over that function. Their mom, Mama Renucci, always said I was too skinny. Manja, manja, she'd go. They did this thing. Uh, whatever was left over in the restaurant was thrown in with some eggs and a big scramble and served with toast. That was my favorite after a night of drinking and dancing at the clubs. Whenever I was at Adolph's, I'd pick up the check, sign for it. Every Christmas, I'd get them back bundled up in a nicely wrapped shoebox with a bow on it. There'd be a card saying, Merry Christmas, kid. Signed, your godfather, Fortune. Fortune gave me a fortune in more ways than one. I'll never forget that. As much as my life was intertwined with mobsters, there were always cops around, too. When things got too busy at the flower shop, my dad would get the local cops to help out by making deliveries on their rounds. They wore long coats that would cover their police uniform, and it gave them drinking money, so no one's the wiser. And there was Blackie Madison, who was a cop. He was my dad's collection guy. So I guess it makes some sense that I decided to become a cop. The plan was to take the test anywhere and get on the force. If you become a cop anywhere, you could transfer your police credentials. I'd been married two years, and I went to Sturgis, Kentucky first to try to get on the force. It was a small town where my grandma lived, and it was so small that there was a notice in the local newspaper that her grandson was coming to visit when we arrived. I wasn't accepted on the force then, which made my wife, Judy, happy. I even went to Dade County in Florida, because they were given bonuses if you took the job. I got accepted and offered the opportunity to join the force. I put it off for six months because there were things about the job that didn't seem like a good fit. It was the 80s, and Miami was being taken over by cocaine. I didn't speak Spanish. They had a lot of Cuban perps. It required a polygraph test. I get real nervous under certain conditions, like being a little iffy on some of the questions that might come up on a polygraph about pop. I don't want to blow it. Finally, I went down on Michigan Avenue in Chicago and took it. Somebody told me to have a few drinks beforehand to help me relax, so I did. Apparently it worked, because I passed. <sighs> then I heard from a buddy. Cops were being busted for turning their heads or for taking 500,000 in payoffs, otherwise they'd be killed. I decided to pass on Miami. I didn't think Judy would like it down there, and I was hoping not to make her a widow. Good news was now that I passed the polygraph, I could be a cop practically anywhere. I ended up at the Cooks County Sheriff's Department. Right out of the academy, I was assigned to be a bodyguard to Judge Sylvester E. Close. He was pure Irish, right down to his green Cadillac. There were only three judges picked to adjudicate Class X felonies cases as part of the Three Strikes Law. He was one picked first. He presided over the worst of the worst murderers, home invasions, 
criminal sexual assault. It was rumored, and I'm being polite here, that the judge was not fond of our um, African-American brothers. People wanted them dead. It was my job for the next year and a half to keep that from happening. My wife, Judy, recalls it as being one of the worst times of our life. So much for guessing right on what she'd like. The judge wanted me to go to law school. Only one problem with that plan. I hate school. So I became a patrol cop in the unincorporated areas of Cook County. And I stayed for the next five and a half years. Courtesy of my dad, I had some friends in high places on the force. There was this time that my friend, Danny Linder, who was the best man at my wedding, decided to play a little prank on me. It was early one morning, and Danny and the guys knew what area I'm working radar in. I see this car coming right at me, and the radar gun reads 110 miles per hour. It flies by with a horn honking. I throw the squad car in reverse, pull a perfect Starsky and Hutch, and take off after him. It slows down, but I can't read the license plate because it's covered with a T-shirt. I'm thinking possible burglary suspects. I get on the speaker and tell them to put their hands out the window where I can see them. Instead, the car takes off again. Bottles and other trash start coming out of the sunroof. But eventually the car stops. And all my buddies get out of the car laughing. <laughs> Fucking idiots could have got shot. Later, I thought it was pretty funny though. Speaking of getting shot, when I worked as a runner delivering flowers, sometimes I'd get paired up with my uncle. Everybody called him the Colonel because he'd been in intelligence in the army in Japan. None of that intelligence was evident in his car. It was filthy. Anyways, he worked as a Chicago cabbie, too. And he's infamous because of a couple of things. He was understudy and stand-in for Burl Ives in all of his movies. But most of all, he was infamous because one night two black guys held a razor blade to his throat and robbed him. He begged them not to kill him, and they didn't because they said he was too fat to die. When they got out of the cab, they both yelled at him, okay, fat man, you can leave now, <laughs> laughing at him as they walked up the sidewalk. What they didn't know is the colonel always carried his 45 under his seat. He yells back to them, hey, guys, you forgot something. They turned around, and they blew them both away. Who's laughing now? Well, from that day on, he was a local hero to all the cabbies. The cops didn't mind either. It's ironic and kind of funny that I became a cop, given my family history and the fact that I spent a lot of my childhood surrounded by Chicago mobsters. My life was never dull. Besides the mobsters, there were other celebrities. One time, I delivered flowers to Hugh Hefner's girlfriend. Some guys don't get any closer to a Playboy bunny than just looking at a centerfold. I was face to face with those beauties. Thanks for the memories. I guess I did a 360 turn when I became a cop. Funny thing is, being a cop is what led me to being an actor. I shot what's called an industrial film for the police department. I liked acting. My sister Sandy's boyfriend was best friends with a stage manager at Second City. I started taking lessons with Del Close. He left to start Improv Olympics with China Halpern. I started my own improv group. But seriously, folks, we went on to win at the Improv Olympics. After that, I met Jane Marie, an agent who loved me. She pitched me on being an agent. By this time, I've got three kids, and I'm still working as a cop. So 
I became an agent, too, until I met a guy who said I could make a killing as a rep for illustrators, photographers, and directors. I started my own company, Schofield and Associates. Within a year, I was making more money than I did as a cop. I said goodbye to that life, narrowly escaping an FBI bust of fellow squad partners for brutality. I'd seen a lot of that. Murders, rapes, shootings, that kind of thing can screw your head around. But I gotta credit my dad for setting me straight on some important things in life. He taught me three things. One, if you can make a girl laugh, you're golden. Two, if you can dance, you're even in a better situation. And three, if you're gonna get in a fight at school, hit the guy right between the eyes and hit him first because you're both going to the principal's office and you might as well go in as a winner. Jeez, I miss my dad.